Let me ask you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. And while you're doing that, let me ask you to turn in your worship guide to, I, I know I'm asking a lot of you, but uh, to page 9, which we're going to uh, want to point out something there first before we read the Word of God. It gives me real pleasure to introduce Rob Elderton to you today. Those of you that were in Sunday school heard about his uh, heritage. He is not a, a son of our church, though we pray for sons of our church to go to the mission field, but he is indeed a grandson of our church. Many of you remember uh, Patty Elderton, who's now with the Lord. But uh, how encouraging to see a Christian heritage passed on uh, from generation to generation with uh, a vision for serving the Lord. Uh, Rob's father is uh, a pastor, was here in South Carolina from, for uh, many years. Um, Rob and is married to Jenny. They have three children, Miriam, Gus, and Lottie. And they are uh, serving in Emmanuel Church, Brentford. Now, you may remember several years ago, we had Stuart Cashman, who is the uh, British pastor of that church, uh, fill our pulpit, and we had time with him. Uh, what a joy that was. And we... Uh, from that time on, have partnered with him and with the church and uh, also partnered with the Eldertons. So as uh, this weekend, we focus especially upon uh, uh, England and our church planting there. Uh, it, it gives me a, a great joy for Rob to come and preach to us. And so uh, let me ask you to stand as we read God's Word in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. For that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men for not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. It is a pleasure and a privilege to be with you all this morning. I, I hope there are no debt collectors in our midst because I feel like I owe y'all a whole lot. Uh, you know, the pastor said how how encouraging it is to for y'all to see me, but it, it's such an encouragement for me to see you all. You you cared for my uh, grandmother, 
uh, when she came to this, this congregation, she was a sweet little old lady, and you took her in and you took care of her. And now about four, four and a half years ago, uh, you started taking care of me and my family. So it's, it's a beautiful thing to see uh, a church that, that cares not just for, for sweet little old ladies, but, but their families and their, their children and grandchildren. We uh, have been supported for, for a little over four years by you all, and, and it's, it's been just tremendously encouraging. Uh, we couldn't be in the UK without you all. We couldn't be helping churches there get started and get planted uh, without you all. It's, I, I, I go around to, I, we've got a lot of churches that support us, and I tell them all what I'm telling you right now. Uh, it's the Lord's ministry, but it's as much your ministry as ours because your prayers and your support goes with us. You send uh, Glenn and Donna over uh, every now and again to, to look after us and encourage us. It's such a blessing uh, to us. So I, I bring greetings this morning uh, from my wife, Jenny, from our, our three children, Miriam, Gus, and Lottie. Uh, I bring greetings to you this morning from Emmanuel Church Brentford uh, that you've been tremendously supportive of from the, the very first day, uh, and from Stuart Cashman, the, the pastor there uh, that we've been working with. So thank you for your prayers and your support. Uh, warmest greetings from everyone there uh, at Emmanuel Church in London. Uh, if you've got your Bibles, I, I invite you to keep them open uh, as we look at, at God's Word this morning. You might not be able to tell by looking at me, but I enjoy running. And I don't enjoy the idea of it. I don't even really like the act of it that much, but it's something that I, I enjoy doing mostly because it, I feel like after I've run, I can eat whatever I want, and I don't have to feel guilty about it. And a number of years ago, I signed up for a race. Uh, a couple of friends of mine were, were doing a half marathon. It was when I lived in Pennsylvania. It was the Philadelphia Half Marathon. And I thought, this is great. You know, I, I'll, this gives me motivation. It gives me a goal to shoot for. So I'm going to sign up. I'm going to do this half marathon. I spent weeks trying to get ready for this. Now, most of my life, I had been pretty sedentary. I uh, didn't do a whole lot of anything. Uh, but I, I started actually getting out and, and running. And the day of the race comes along. And I get up kind of towards the front with my friends who, who were, were running this race, and they were, they were actually athletes. You know, they, they'd actually worked out for a number of years. And so I got up because I wanted to start the race with them, and, and I'm out like a shot. And I think, man, I'm doing better than I've ever done on, on my neighborhood runs. This is great. And then at, at about the, the 9 or 10-mile mark, there's this massive hill. And somebody in this group that I was running in, by that point I was just left behind with strangers. So one of them yells, you know, pump your arms. Pump your arms as hard as you can. It'll help you get up the hill. And so I I'm, I'm, I'm start pumping my arms as hard as I can. And I get to the top of this hill, and I thought that was great. You know, I got to the top of the hill. Uh, and then a few moments later, I thought I was going to die. <laughs> now, Paul in our passage this morning is actually using racing language. And he actually uses this in, in a number of his letters to the church. He, he talks about uh, running, you know, finishing the race and, and running the race. Today, he's, he's asking for prayer, that the gospel would speed ahead. And the, the question that, that I think we should have as a church is, but what happens when we hit the hill? You know, the, the culture that, that we're planting churches in, in England, uh, in London, Less than 3% of the population attends a church at least twice a month. You may have heard that before. When you actually break that down into the kind of churches Paul was planting, 
churches that are proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, churches where, where the word of God is preached and proclaimed every single week, that number drops to less than one and a half percent of the population in the United Kingdom. And so coming to a, a passage like this one, our question should be, well, what happens when we hit the hill? What happens when we come across a culture and a country and a nation that is hardened to the gospel? You know, it sounds great for, for Paul. He was an apostle to ask for prayer that the gospel would speed ahead. But that was in the first century. It was just different back then. It, it feels harder today in modern Britain. It probably feels harder today in America as well. Some of you may feel this way. Some of you may have been sharing the gospel with your family members and friends for years, and it seems like no progress is being made. Some folks just seem so stubborn, don't they, when we try and tell them about Jesus. So what should our prayer and our expectations be when given what feels like a very different context? What does it look like to be a church on mission in a modern world? I think, first of all, a church that's part of the gospel mission should actually take encouragement from Paul's letters to the Thessalonians because what we see here is actually not much has changed. It actually hasn't gotten any easier. Now, how is that, how is that encouraging? Stay with me for a moment. Paul was actually writing to a church in an incredibly pagan culture. It was a small church that he, that he had helped to start, and he, he, he's writing to this little church that seems to be hanging by a cliff's edge. And the slightest breeze would tip it over into apostasy. They were surrounded by, uh, by a deeply secular culture. And Paul was actually scared for them. You know, in his first letter that he wrote to the Thessalonian church, Paul spends a huge chunk of that letter talking about just how anxious he was for this little congregation. He was talking about how, how concerned he was for this church that he had planted. He knew the pressures that they were under and the pressures that they faced. And on top of all that, he couldn't actually go back to them and encourage them. So he tells them in his first letter that, that uh, when he couldn't stand it anymore, when he had just grown so anxious for them that he, he couldn't stand it anymore, he sent Timothy along to, to check up on them. The report that Timothy brought back was a good report. It, it relieved some of his fears and anxieties. Now, that didn't mean that this church was perfect. Paul had to rebuke them for some things as well. But the church was holding fast to the gospel. And they were holding fast to the gospel amidst an incredibly difficult culture. And the reason they were holding fast to the promises of God that Christ would return. They were anticipating the return of their king. And the return of the king makes all of the difference. And folks, we're, we're waiting for the king too, aren't we? You know, one of the most uh, famous stories to come out of, out of England is, is, of course, the story of Robin Hood. And you all know the story, don't you? This man who, who stood up against uh, the usurper, Prince John. Uh, a man who was trying to claim the throne for his own. One of the, some of you probably saw, most of you probably saw uh, the film that came out in the 90s where that tells this, this story of, of Robin Hood. And at the very end of this, this film, at the end of this tale, uh, something wonderful happens. Sean Connery shows up. 
and he shows up in all of his glorious Scottishness. And in that moment, you almost forget you spent two hours watching Kevin Costner not speaking in an English accent. But, but Sean Connery turns up, and he's, he's the true king. And he shows up at the wedding of, of Robin Hood to, to Maid Marian, and he says to them, I will grant my blessing for this marriage on one condition, and that's that I get to give away the bride. And it's this, this beautiful moment at the end of a, a pretty rubbish film, to be honest. But it, it's, it's this, this beautiful moment because, because the longing of the hearts of these people was for their king to return and to set everything to rights. And that's, the, the longing, that's been the longing of the church for 2,000 years. And it's the longing of the church today amidst the struggle and the hardship of, of a culture that is sliding away from the truth of God's word. We still are looking to the same promises that the first century church was looking towards. The coming of the king. The return of Christ Jesus. And when he comes, all of the, the troubles and the struggles and the things that we feared will fade away. A day is coming that the Thessalonians anticipated so long ago when the king will return. Are you anticipating that day? Are you anticipating the coming of the king? Because a church that is on mission has to recognize that that is the, that is the hope that we look towards. And if you are, as the Thessalonians were, then Paul actually gives us instructions for, for what we do in the meantime. What should we do when faced with the struggles of life in a fallen world? With life in a secular culture that, that hates the truth? Well, in that context, a church that's part of the gospel mission should pray for the gospel to speed ahead. We should do exactly what Paul instructed the first century church to do, to pray that the gospel would speed ahead. In the midst of darkness, we pray for the light to spread. Now, what does that look like when the gospel spreads? Paul tells us that, that it means that the gospel is honored, that the word of God is honored, that it takes root, that we see individuals who, who are, are bowing the knee to Christ Jesus as their Lord and Savior. We see believers who are being discipled, and we see people who are, who are turning from their sin and growing in the grace of of Jesus. And that's what we expect to see, certainly on an individual level. But what do we expect to see as the church? If the gospel is honored amongst the church, what do we expect to see? Paul, I think, here uh, has a, a bigger picture in mind when he tells them to pray that the gospel would speed ahead. What Paul's actually asking them to pray for was that community of believers would be established, that further churches would be established. That's the pattern we see throughout Paul's earthly ministry, is the, the establishment of churches in places where there was no church. Because Christ is honored, and God is honored, in communities where the, where, where the gospel is preached, and worship happens. And that's still true today. As the church of Christ Jesus, we're called to continue to do the work of the apostles. We do this work that they started nearly 2,000 years ago. It's safe to say that the mission of the church today is still the church. It's still the spread and the, the growth of the church. We have a, a church planter uh, over in England. His name's Jaunty. Some of you may have met him. Uh, he's a brilliant church planter. He's planting his second church uh, in Leeds. One of the things he's, he's fond of saying is that, we plant churches 
not church plants. We plant churches, not church plants. He says that's, that's what the apostles did 2,000 years ago. It's what the, the church has been doing for centuries. We plant churches, not church plants. In other words, we, we plant these gospel communities that worship God and that proclaim his word. It's, we're, not trying to plant, we're not trying to start kind of the next neat trend in the church. We're not trying to give to a particular set of people. Planting churches that do what you do right here in Irmo. We're doing the same thing in London. I get asked all the time, usually by non-Christians, why, why are you starting a church in a country, in a place where the church is on the decline? I get asked that all the time by non-Christians. They want to know. And my response is, first of all, we don't want to plant a church. We want to plant a lot of churches. We don't want to just plant one. We want to start a lot of churches. But second of all, and I, I don't say this to them in the same way I'm saying it to you this morning, we plant churches because we believe it is the greatest evangelistic tool, if you will, that Christ has given us. Have you ever thought about that? What do, what do people hear when they come to St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church on a Sunday morning? They hear the word of God proclaimed and applied to their hearts and lives. They hear the gospel. And that's what they hear at Emmanuel Church in Brentford. And if we're doing it right, they not only hear that on a Sunday morning, they hear it every single day of the week because our people take that word out with them into their community. But not only that, what do people, what do people experience when they come to your church? They probably experience the same thing they, they experience in our little church in London. The, the fellowship of believers, the love of God's people for one another. And so they're not just hearing the gospel. They're experiencing it. They're, they're, they're feeling it. They're, having, they're, they're, they're seeing how it works in their lives. Like, like my grandmother, when she came to this church, she felt the love of God's people for, for a little old lady who, who lives in Irmo. And that's what people need to see. And that's what people need to experience and what they need to hear. You know, there's a, a statistic that, that's thrown around, and I'll give you another one. Uh, on average, in the United Kingdom, it takes four years from the time someone first hears the gospel until the time that they, they profess faith in Christ Jesus, that they say, I'm following Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. So what do you do with someone for four years? You bring them into the gospel community. You bring them into a church where they have the time to hear God's word, to study God's word, to process what that means for their lives. That's why we, we plant churches. Because in dark places where it takes that long to, to, for someone to come to Jesus, it isn't enough to simply knock on doors. And it isn't simply enough to, to pass out some gospel tracts and then wait four years and hope that, that something happens. But people need to experience the grace of Jesus Christ in real and profound ways every single day. And that's why Christ has given us his church. And so I would ask you all the same, to, to do the same thing Paul asked the church in Thessalonica to do 2,000 years ago, to pray. And to pray big. Pray that the gospel would, would so be, be so taken in the United Kingdom that, that lives are transformed and changed. Pray that, that an insane number of churches would be planted. You know, in our, our little denomination, the IPC, we have about nine churches in our little denomination in, in the United Kingdom. And they 
plan, and I didn't come up with this plan. This was, this, these were, were English guys, British guys, who came up with this plan. They want to plant 20 churches in the next 20 years. That sounds insane, doesn't it? But what if the gospel were to speed ahead? What if the gospel were to speed ahead and be honored in the United Kingdom? Could 20 churches get planted in the next 20 years? I, I think they could be. I think Paul would say they could be. But we need your prayers. We need you to pray. And there's also a sobering reality that Paul points to here that he asks them to remember and to pray for. He reminds them in verse 2 that there are, are wicked men who would seek to do harm to the spread of the gospel. You know, it's, a, it's remarkable in a way that, that Paul would ask for prayer for this. And we would assume, given all the, the persecution that, that the Thessalonian church faced, that, that they would have, have no need to be reminded to pray for this. But Paul asked them to pray for this. He asked them to pray for protection from wicked men. And it's a gentle reminder that, that no Christian endeavor, no Christian seeking to do good and spreading the word of God will be immune to resistance from evil people. We, we see that in our day, don't we? Uh, people hate the word of God. And usually it's, it's couched in sort of the, the terms of tolerance, isn't it? You know, we need to be tolerant. Uh, and that's a lovely word. Uh, it, it sounds really nice. And it's probably the greatest threat to the gospel in Europe. And it's probably the greatest threat to the gospel in this country. Because what tolerance says, excuse me, what tolerance says is that we need to, to tolerate sinful lifestyles. And eventually what happens when you start to tolerate is eventually you begin to embrace. And we see that happening more and more. And you hear this, young people, because you're, uh, young people, you're, you're under tremendous pressure to, to not just tolerate, but to embrace the, the sins of our culture. And so notice how the word works, this word tolerance. It recognizes the truth that historically our, our countries and our, our cultures held to sort of a Christian belief system and a Christian ethos. And then it's explicitly calling people to, in calling us to rebel against the word of God. And what happens when, when that begins to take root is hostility towards the gospel and towards the church grows. We see this in, in the UK. You start to see it in, in little ways. You know, people sort of making snarky remarks about Christians and about the church. After a while, you start hearing how uh, you want to go and, and start a church in a place, and, and you start looking for a place to meet, and you start hearing, well, oh, we don't really want to, to rent our facilities to a church. That's not really what, what we're about. You know, your money's no good here, in other words. You know, we, have a, a, we had one of our churches that wanted to buy a piece of property. And, and they, were, they were told by the owner, that's great, yeah, we'll, we'll sell you this property. Then uh, a few weeks in, the owner starts getting letters from people in the community. And these letters were saying, we, we don't want this church here because they're intolerant. And so we, we, we don't, we're, would you please not sell them this piece of property. Folks, we, we need your prayers that the Lord would protect us from wicked and evil men who have no faith. We need your prayers that the gospel would speed ahead and that it would take root in the hearts of people 
the way it has here among you. Now, last point is that a church that's part of the gospel mission should recognize that God is sufficient to accomplish his goals. That's Paul's, really his main point. That's what he spends most of his time on in this little paragraph. God is sufficient in himself to accomplish the goal of his glory being revealed in and through his church. Paul tells us exactly that. Look at verses 3 and 4. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. You know, there's a, a lot of things in this world and in life that discourage us, aren't there? But Paul, uh, Paul's promise to the Thessalonians is that, that God is sufficient to accomplish his goals and his plans. That there's nothing that can, can stand up against God in his plans and his work. Now, how could Paul promise that? How could Paul promise that? Because he knew God's character. And he knew God's character because he, he knew God's word. And we see this throughout God's word, don't we? Throughout the Old Testament. Uh, think about Ezra for a moment. We don't think about Ezra very much, do we? It's a small little book in the Old Testament. Ezra was written uh, about, uh, about the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem following uh, the, the Babylonian captivity. Do you know how the temple got rebuilt? A pagan king, Cyprus, ordered uh, the, the Jews to return to Jerusalem. And he, said in re, uh, he, he told them to rebuild their temple so that they could worship their God. And do you know what else he told them? He said, My, I'm going to pay for all of that. And so he, this pagan person uh, sends, speeds, if you will, the gospel along because God would not allow paganism to, to hold back his people in his glory. And that's what Paul is talking about here. We've seen this, this uh, at work in our own ministry. We have a, a family that, that came to the country and they had uh, a social worker looking after them. And this was someone who who was, I think, maybe a Muslim, or maybe he was just a secularist. He didn't really believe anything. And we had gotten to know this family who were, were devout Muslims. And, and I, I invited them to, to come to church. And, and I, I called the social worker because they didn't speak very much English, and, and this guy could kind of translate, and I needed him to translate this invitation to our church. And I, I said to the social worker, is, is this okay? And I expected him to say, well, no, it's not okay. But actually, you know what this... this guy who, who doesn't believe in God, uh, if he does, it's a very different God from what you and I believe in. He says, oh yeah, this is great. I've actually been encouraging them to try and go to church because they've never been to a church before, and I, I think it'd be good for them to, to check this out. You know, we, we serve a God who is so big that he can move in the hearts even of, of people who don't believe in him to, to aid us in our work and in our mission. And so it's easy to grow discouraged. But Paul says, don't grow discouraged. Have confidence. And that confidence is not in ourselves. It's not in our abilities. It's not in the good things that we do. Our confidence is that we serve a Savior, a King, who is so big that he can not only overcome our sins, he can overcome the sins of everyone else in this world. And that he's sufficient to do that 
And that he, he wants to see his gospel go forth. And he wants to see his word proclaimed. And so we don't lose heart when faced with hardship. And we don't lose heart when faced with struggle. But we, we rest upon Christ Jesus alone for our hope and salvation. And Paul ends with, with this beautiful little prayer. You know, one of the brilliant things about Paul's letters, and, and particularly this letter to the Thessalonians, is that he, he sprinkles little pastoral prayers throughout it. And, and it's a beautiful thing because what we see in, in these little prayers is Paul's pastoral heart for his church. And what, we, what that reflects is actually God's heart for his church. He says, may the Lord direct your hearts. May he, he point your heart toward God's love and to the steadfastness of Christ Jesus. What do you direct your hearts towards? That's an important question, isn't it? That's a watershed question for us as believers and for our church. Because it's the question that's going to define how we live our lives it's a question that will define how we, we get up, why, why we get up in the morning. It's a question that tells us how we're going to spend the majority of our time and the majority of our money and the majority of our energy. What do you direct your heart towards? What is the direction of your affections? You know, if left to ourselves, we direct our hearts towards all kinds of, of rubbish, wouldn't we? Most of us have. I certainly have. But Paul's prayer calls us back to the very source of life itself. It calls us back to the very source of our hope, to the very source of our, our dependence for our salvation, for the very, for the very source of, of our life and our breath. And it's a beautiful prayer because if God does indeed direct our hearts towards him and his immense love for us, then there we find our satisfaction. There we can leave behind the fears and the cares and the sins and the sorrows and find rest for our weary souls. We can have this hope not just because we have a great God who loves us, but because that great God loved us so much that he gave us his own son as our Savior. And that Savior is steadfast. That Savior just doesn't quit. When we feel like we can't go on, when we feel like we can't do enough, we direct our hearts to the steadfastness of Christ Jesus, who purchased our pardon for sin and has promised to bring about our holiness by his immense grace. See, once again, we see the King the king that, that the Thessalonians were waiting for so long ago. We see him here again, and we're still waiting. And we may be waiting for a long time, or we may be waiting a short time. I know we all probably hope it's a short time. But the king is coming. In the meantime, he calls us to pray and to seek to, spe to speed his word ahead that it might be honored by all men, in all peoples, and in all nations, for his glory alone. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray 
as Paul instructed us to pray so long ago, that your gospel, that your word might speed ahead and be honored as it has been honored amongst us. And we pray, Father, that you would protect us from evil men who have no faith. Father, we, we pray as your apostle prayed so long ago. May you direct our hearts to, the love, to your love for us and to the strength and steadfastness of Christ Jesus, our Savior. It's in his strong name that we pray. Amen.